it's good to be here with you today. Uh, as was said already, my name is Michael Garza. I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I am a uh, district licensed minister, a God-called evangelist. So much of my ministry is actually in uh, preaching and uh, teaching uh, holiness in, in revivals, retreats, uh, special services, things like that. I'm sorry, I'm getting my, my Zoom here figured out. Things like that. And uh, really, the biggest thing is for me is emphasizing uh, holiness, calling people to be saved and sanctified. And also, and this is the part of it for here today, is, is, is really trying to prepare and equip the church to be who they're supposed to be who God calls us to be so that God can then do through us what God wants to do through us. If we're missing those elements, we're not going to be successful and effective. And I think we see that around us today in the church and especially in America, how we need that. Um, we desperately need that. So the beginning of this that I have for you that I want to share the scripture is Zechariah 4, 6, and I'm going to read some comments by Adam Clark here, but he says in, in, in this passage, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, Adam Clark in his commentary uh, says these words about it. Uh, this prince was in a trying situation and he needed a special encouragement from God. And here it is, not by might of thy own, nor by power, authority from others, but by my spirit, the providence, authority, power, and energy of the Most High. No secular arm, no human prudence, no earthly policy, no suits at law shall ever be used for the founding, extension, and preservation of my church. But the spirit of the world says, these are all the means to which, uh, to which is we must have recourse. Otherwise, the cause of God may be ruined. And he says this, and I love it. He says, Satan, thou liest. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it is not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of the Lord that these things take place. And recently I had a conversation with Dr. Sherwood. I ran into him at uh, Olivet Nazarene University's homecoming. Uh, my wife graduated from Olivet, and I attended there for a while. And while we were there and talking with him, my heart kind of began to come out, which if you know me and talk to me at all, it's hard for that not to happen. I'm a very passionate individual, and this began to come out, and I was sharing what I shared with you briefly about my call. And in talking with him, Dr. Sherwood threw out a name. And it's a name that we're probably all familiar with, we've heard of before, we've probably studied, and that's Charles Finney. Now, Charles Finney was, a, was an American evangelist, saw great moves of God in the early 1800s in the state of New York. Uh, he's an individual that no doubt was uh, anointed by God and God did some amazing things in. Um, he's a man that, uh, although there's some minute details in his theology on original sin that I would have discrepancies with, um, he's a man that God used uh, mightily. But when he said uh, Charles Finney, a name popped into my head, and he's an individual that I shared with Dr. Sherwood briefly, and it's a name that I don't know if any of you have ever been familiar with or heard of. His name is Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash was an individual who had been a uh, pastor and an evangelist for a time who God actually pulled out of his personal ministry and put on the road with, uh, with Charles Finney. He put him on the road there, and when he put him on the road, his whole purpose, his whole calling, his whole intent was to go before Finney They'd go to the places where they were going to hold revivals. They'd go to an area where they determined to hold a meeting, where they knew that the condition was poor, that they needed Jesus. And he would get there weeks beforehand, sometimes with another man named uh, Father Cleary. And they would rent out a room or a cellar or somewhere like that. And they'd close themselves in with God. They would literally shut themselves in with the Lord. They wouldn't take any food. They would stay there. They would pray. They would fast. They would weep. They would intercede that way until things began to break in the heavenlies. 
They, be, they would stay there and intercede that way until God began to move, until God, uh, until essentially until they had prayed clear through for the victory in the meetings. And then Finney would come in. And when Finney would come in, he would hold the meetings and we can see in history what is recorded there, what God did. And I believe that it was a, re a result of Daniel Nash's mighty prevailing in prayer and intercession. Daniel Nash had a mighty ministry of prayer and he was a great intercessor. And I want to point out to us this morning that this ministry of prayer, as many of you I'm sure are familiar with, and especially of intercession, is not something that's a calling for just a few individuals. It's not something that the Bible says you're going to be a prayer. No, I think it's interesting, actually, that the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to how to preach or teach them how to tell parables. Jesus, they, they asked Jesus, however, Lord, teach us to pray. I think that's an interesting point. Jesus wrestled in prayer. The apostles wrestled in prayer. And it's been noted down throughout the ages that those who did the most for God were, were men and women of much prayer. Now, I know this might be a little different than devotionals you've had here in the past, but I want to ask us a question this morning, bring it down, down to our level a little bit, is what is our purpose? You know, why are we doing what we're doing as faculty and staff and students and ministers and the things that we are involved in? Uh, why are we doing what we're doing? And do we still have a concern, number one, for the lost around us? Amen. Are they still our main motiv motivation and passion? Are we stuck as is the temptation today in the rut of professionalism or organization or human effort or by my might or my power and lacking in uh, travailing in prayer for this, the power of the spirit? Personally, and I, I would think many of you would agree, and I hope so, I believe that what we need in seeing the conditions of our day in America, especially is a fresh move of God. Uh, we need an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And that's the part, if I was in a real service, I'd hope to hear an amen, but on Zoom, it's a little different. But, you know, what we need is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And I believe personally that nothing else will do. But I also believe, and this is where this, this, this uh, little sermonette goes from here, is that uh, I believe that these types of moves of God don't just happen. Uh, David Wilkerson, I'm sure many of you are familiar with his name. He was an evangelist, author, uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, founder of Times Square Church. Uh, in New York, he said these words in his famous sermon, A Call to Anguish, and it's a sermon that I would recommend that uh, you take a listen to. You can Google it and find it if you'd like or read the trans, uh, transcription of it. He stated the following. He said these words. He said, let me tell you something that I've learned over my 50 years of preaching. If it's not born in anguish, if it's not born of the Holy Spirit, where what you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God, he says, I know now. Until I am in agony, until I have been anguished over it and all our projects, all our ministries, everything that we do. He says, where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids that they know are not hearing and are going to hell? You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing his heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, oh, God, your name is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit is being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness, and something has to be done about it. And I would say amen to that. There's going to be no renewal, he says, no revival, no awakening that's so desperately needed today unless we are willing to let him once again break us. He says, folks, it's getting late. He says, don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of Internet or television or other things like that. He says, come on. Lord, we need to get serious. We need some to get to this altar and confess that I'm not what I was. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. 
Leonard Ravenhill, another evangelist, he was an Englishman who's since passed. He said these words. He says, no man is greater than his prayer life spiritually. And I believe that to be true. Wow. R.A. Torrey, another evangelist of the past, stated these words. We live in a day characterized by the multiplication of man's machinery and the diminution of God's power. The great cry of our day is work, work, work. New organizations, new methods, new machinery. But really, the great need of our day is prayer. It was a master stroke of the devil when he got the church to so generally lay aside this mighty weapon of prayer. He said the devil is perfectly willing that the church should multiply its organizations and definitely contrive machinery for the conquests of the world for Christ if it will only give up praying. He laughs and looks at the church today and says to himself, you can have your Sunday schools, you can have your young people's societies, your young men's Christians associations, and your industrial schools and boys brigades your grand choirs, your fine organs, your brilliant preachers, your revival efforts too, if you don't bring the power of Almighty God into them by earnest, persistent, mighty prayer. Now, this is something we're familiar with praying, but I want to reiterate again that it's not just a praying that's done on the fly or a, or a, a I pray without ceasing, which we should have an attitude where our hearts are always lifted up to God, but it is a Matthew 6, 6, in your room, close the door, prayer closet kind of praying until we get God's heart. I believe that's the greatest need of our day is to get God's heart, to get God's burden, the need in the church, and then to pray clear through that so that something will be done for the lost around us. So we prevail in prayer so that God can do something. I believe the situation of our day demands it. We need to return to prayer, to deep earnest prayer, to interceding and agonizing, securing power and victory for the lost. And without that, I believe, as Wilkerson said, all of our efforts are going to be uh, futile. If we want to see revival, if we truly care about seeing the conditions of our day and the churches around us change, then we must once again do this. I believe that there's absolutely no substitute, as I said, and we must do this. But then in there, we must also couple it with the holiness doctrine. The fact that Hebrews 13, 12 states, Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. That Jesus died not just to forgive us from our sins, but also to cleanse us and empower us by uh, sanctifying us whole. That Jesus' blood still purifies man from all sin. He's still the remedy. He's still the answer to man's problems. And I believe that the two go hand in hand, prayer with holiness and holiness with prayer. And I'm convinced that you can't have the one without the other, and you can't have revival without it either. A devotion to God and a complete separation from sin. Sin and a general complacency is the death blow to any move of God. Phineas Brzee, November 28th, 1901, said nothing is so essential for the world's salvation as the building of great holiness fires in America. And Dr. J.B. Chapman, former general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene, wrote and gave a famous address entitled All Out for Souls. I don't know if you've ever read it. If you haven't, you should get it and read it and read it again because it's an awesome address. But he says these words, and I want to share just a few abbreviated portions from it with you today. He says there are plenty of people who are concerned for the Church of the Nazarene as a whole. For the general movement, but what we need just now is a concern that you will bring you and me and a good many others to the same sense of responsibility and to that same willingness to pay the price for spiritual realities that we would expect to feel and to pay if the whole program depended upon us individually, as once it's so large we did. But I would also bring it down to this group right here. The greatest lack there is among us, and he continues a little later, is our want of life-shortening soul passion. We take it too easy. And even when we champion the cause of soul burden and revivals, we do our chore principally in talking. The demand is for bringing this travail right home to ourselves. 
that we may effectively transmit it to others to stir them up to get it from the same source from which we ourselves received it. He says, Dr. Brzee was a serific pulpiteer and a wise leader, but in his own story of how he used to spend much of Saturday in bed soaking in the sermon he was to preach the next day is but the smallest part of the story. He says that he came to the pulpit with shining face because he, like Moses, had spent his time in the mount with God. And his successful altar services and practically every Sunday morning were not accidents, but that they were the logical sequence and consequence of a day and a night spent in groaning in tears before the Lord. Wow. Something that's not worked up that comes from spending much time with God. Chapman says, what then is the great need in our church? A passion for the souls of men. There's not enough heartbreak over the lost, not enough soul burden, not enough groaning and weeping and fasting and crying. Moreover, and as a consequence, there is not enough deep and genuine conviction for sin among the unsaved. And he says, I want a revival that like a summer shower will purify the atmosphere of our churches everywhere and which will awaken the dormant forces of our people, young and old. I want something so general and so divine that it will be uncontrollable. I want something that will reemphasize old time moral and spiritual conditions, something that will reform and regenerate drunkards and save respectable worldlings, something that will bring in the youth and the little children. And boy, do we need that today. Something so attractive that it will break over into the circles of the pleasure loving, something that will set people on their backtracks to make restitution for wrongs committed, something that will bring God to bear upon our domestic problems to save our people from the twin evils of divorce and race suicide. Something that will inject old-time honesty, veracity, purity, and other world-mindedness into our preachers and people. Something that will make this namby-pamby, soft-handed, compromising, cringing sort of holiness as obsolete as Pharisaism was on the day of Pentecost. Something that reveals a man's credentials by means of souls saved and sanctified and established in Christ Jesus. And brethren, I propose that we get down before God in sackcloth and dust and ashes. And I want to tell you today, as faculty and staff, as friends, that I'm not going to preach to you something that I'm not willing to do myself or that I'm not already practicing. And that we pray until we pray, that we then preach until we preach with unction, and that we win the victory for God and for souls. Chapman closed his address with this. In the heat of the battle in our American Civil War, a Confederate general called a corps commander to him and he said, General, go out there and take that fortified hill. The corps, the corps commander answered, I'll try, sir. But the general answered, I did not tell you to try. I told you to go and take it. The corps commander answered, I'll do it or I'll die, sir. Then the general said, I did not tell you to die. I did not say take it or die. I said, take that hill. Mm -hmm. Then the corps commander turned his horse and started saying back over his shoulder, I'll take it, general. And he did take it. Trying is not enough. Dying is not enough. We must take that fortified hill. We must take it, brethren. We must take it. All out for souls, brethren. All out for souls. All out for souls. This is the order of our great commander in chief, speaking from Calvary and from Olivet, and from his throne now lit high and lifted up. And our answer is, we will do it, blessed Lord. We will do it. Yeah. With this, I'll close. Friends, faculty, staff, those that are listening, other students, uh, along the line, fellow ministers and laborers in Christ and in the gospel, I ask you this question today. I want to bring it down home here. Will you do it? Will you do it once again? I don't know you personally. Uh, like Dr. Sherwood said, he doesn't know a whole lot about me. You, I don't know your personal life, just like you don't know mine. But I want to ask you, are you willing to let God once again break you so that you can get his heart and from there co-labor in this place of prayer and intercession as Daniel Nash did? So it's as to see God move. It takes clean hands and a pure heart. 
It takes a willingness to stay alone with God until things move and we pray clear through. The question I have is, are souls your passion today? Something we should always think about. Why do you do what you do? The scripture I read, it's not by might, not by power, but by the spirit, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the condition of our, our day to day demands an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Nothing else is going to do. Nothing else is going to turn the tide. But like I said earlier, and some of the greats that I read reiterated, these things don't just happen. Does this concern you? Do you care? Will you do it? We must. And I'd like to pray uh, to close mine out here, if that's all right. Thank you. Yes, please. Lord, I thank you um, again for the reality that we, we can really get a hold of your heart, God. We can get a hold of your purpose and your vision. And God, I pray right now, generally over the people that have heard this and are going to hear this, that we would take the time with you to get your heart. As I said, I don't know every individual. Lord, you know their hearts and you know my heart. But God, I want your glory first and foremost to be number one. But then from there, Lord, for your glory, to see those that are lost and going to hell, to come to know you, Lord Jesus. And I know that that takes your spirit. So God, I ask that you would bless uh, each individual person who listens to this, their ministries, Lord. I pray that you would bless their, their service and their roles and the things that they're doing, Lord, and that at the forefront, they would keep your glory and the lost is number one, the reason why we do what we do. The purpose is to see you glorified and the lost one. And God, I pray that we would be convicted, each one of us, no matter how long we've walked with you, to look at our lives and to see, God, I want your burden and your passion I want to go with you, Lord, so that I can see these strongholds ta uh, taken and broken down and so that I can see an outpouring of the spirit because our day demands it. Lord, once again, I praise you and I thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you've started, Lord. And I do pray that we would see this take place in our day. And I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.